The following audio is via a Skype call. No one knows where the monster will strike next. It was last seen on Wall Street. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Hope you'll stick around. What a show we have for you today. But before that, we need to say hello to our buddy Nathan, who's filling in for the dude. That's right. Nathan, glad to have you with us. Hey, Gary and Suzanne. And if you want to have a little quirky nickname for me, I guess you can call me the tall guy in case you see me in the future. <laughs> Well, now, how tall is tall, Nathan? I am six foot six tall. Now, oh. you be the judge if that's tall or not. I'm You're six three and a Gary. half. He'll be calling me shrimp. My goodness. <laughs> I always thought I was a big shot. I'm exactly the same height as Jimmy Stewart. And here you are at six six. So uh, how long did you play in the NBA? You know, I actually tried it for about maybe two years in fourth and fifth grade, I want to say. And still to this day, I can't really jump that high. I can't touch the rim. So that doesn't really work out for me in being a center or trying to dunk a basketball. So, so, Nathan, so radio you, seems good. Nathan, <laughs> are you trying are you trying to tell me that you are a Caucasian? Because we know white guys can't jump. We know that. <laughs> I guess it's true in this scenario. But I do play baseball and I pitched for a little bit and played a hot corner third base. Oh my goodness. Very, All right. Very good. Very good. Well, well, we're so happy to have you with us today. We've uh, been with you before on Fridays, but this is I think our first Saturday together that I can remember. And uh, and you are a familiar voice and we wish Mike well and we will look forward to his return, but we're happy to have you here today. It's great to be with you again. And we are going to trip back into the 60s. And I'm not talking about the fact that we're in our 60s. We're boomers. We admit it. We're proud of it. We're also proud of the cultural lineage and the heritage of what rock music meant to millions of people around the globe, whether you were listening to it every spare moment on the radio or playing the records at home as a kid in the 60s, or if you had to bootleg it if you were behind the Iron Curtain where that kind of stuff was considered a crime and punishable by imprisonment to listen to the Beatles for crying out loud and all that other stuff coming from the decadent West. We have someone today who is, in my mind, an anthropologist slash archeologist of the rock genre, particularly when he goes into the mystic, that's the name of his wonderfully researched and beautifully written book, Into the Mystic, the visionary and ecstatic roots of 1960s rock and roll. The man's name is Christopher Hill. He's got some mad props coming, courtesy of Suzanne. Christopher Hill has written about rock and roll music in the pages of Spin, Record Magazine, International Musician, Chicago Magazine, Downbeat, Deep Roots Magazine, and other national and regional publications. His work has been anthologized in the Rolling Stone Record Review, and he is the author of Holidays and Holy Nights, currently a contributing editor at Deep Roots Magazine. He lives in Madison, Wisconsin, where Gary and I spent a night. Yes, so we welcome to Manson Mitchell for the very first time, Christopher Hill. We're happy to have you on today. Well, thank you for having me on your show, and I appreciate your kind words about the book. 
Christopher, I have to tell you the story of how we came in possession of it. And then uh, we will definitely have a lot of questions for you to hold forth. And that is that that Gary and I, uh, we get uh, catalogs from various publishers and we received a catalog in September of 2017, anticipating your book coming out. And in this catalog, we threw away the catalog, but we ripped out the page with Into the Mystic, <laughs> and we uh-huh. said, oh, we've got to read that book. And we set it aside. And before, where we set it aside, I'm not sure, it kind of got a little lost. But what do you think happened to us the very next year? Gary and I got sent your book by a fellow KKNW host exchanging a Christmas gift uh, as a Christmas gift when we never exchanged Christmas gifts with her before. That's true. Mm -hmm. Christine Cisneros. Thank you to Christine. Mad props to her. She sent us a copy of Into the Mistake. Well, there you go. That's correct. (laughs) And and she sent it to us with the note. I think this guy would be great for your show. So that's when another host says that they're thinking, well, maybe not for my format, but I know a couple that could really make good use of all the research and the beautiful writing that you put into into the mystic, the visionary and ecstatic roots of 1960s rock and roll. So grateful for that gift. Christopher, when when Gary described the book, he he called it archaeological and anthropological. And that is the two (laughs) words Gary and I have been using about this book as we've been reading it to each other. How do how would you describe the book? Well, um, archaeological and anthropological aren't bad ways to talk about it. Um, I was looking in writing this book to go back to the era and re take a second look at some of these songs, at a lot of these songs, and try to evoke the atmosphere in which these songs were first heard. Um, in, in other words, I'm... I'm hoping to avoid nostalgia. I mean, the the nostalgia is present in the book, and if you were around in that era, I'm sure it will bring back, I hope it will bring back some memories. Um, But what I want to do is show people how this is not not just nostalgia, but uh, an art that can still have an effect on consciousness today when people listen to it. Um, back in in the day, in the time, there was a culture built around this music that sort of had an interpretation of it as being part of a change in a, a transformation of the world, a change in human consciousness, and whether that uh, whether those those ideas were exaggerated or grandiose or not. I wanted people to be aware of how the songs were received at first and how they might still be received today. Absolutely. Chris, I'm glad you used the word nostalgia because I have a saying, today's misery is tomorrow's nostalgia. I found (laughs) that to be true in my own life. And I see it really as a kind of societal trope, if you will. 
this idea of nostalgia, I have had numerous people, I'll put it that way, say to me, I miss the good old days. I miss watching The Lone Ranger. I miss the cartoons on Saturday morning. I miss listening to the Beatles records. I miss the good old days of the 1960s. And I will say to them, I've got news for you. <laughs> I miss all that stuff, too. I mean, I was a Beatle maniac. I still love the Beatles. I grew up in the 1960s. And you know what? This is what I'll say to people. I took civics class. What is happening in the world? How does government happen? How does legislation occur? Why do we elect the presidents that we do, et cetera, et cetera? I took civics class in the spring of 1968. You do the math. So right. when I hear, hear people wax nostalgic, I say, I get it. I really do from the standpoint of pop culture, because that's what everybody shared. The TV, the movies, the records, of course. What was your favorite radio station? All of that, even the dress of the period. But there was a lot going on there that is well substantiated and beautifully articulated in your book, Chris, to indicate that there was a seismic upheaval going on. And while we were in the midst of it, we scarcely could make sense of it. At least most of us didn't make sense of it. We were at the effect of it. Yes, right. You know, well, uh, Chris, think, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, we want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> um, it seems to me that nostalgia is um, is sort of a source of comfort for people. It's a comforting thing to to try and relive or re-experience things that you're familiar with. And my hope in the book was to expand the way that people could hear this music in in 2020 um, in ways that would still be fresh and new and and hopefully a little bit unsettling, uh, which is sort of the opposite of, of the comfort of nostalgia in a way. I would like people to hear this book as sort of, or to hear this music as sort of um, a call to a call to a different kind of consciousness, a call to see the world in a different way. Christopher, I like that you said that. Um, you know, when Gary used the words archaeological or anthropological, um, I, I want to say that this is an extremely well-researched and well-written book it's not a casual read. You wouldn't read this book like you might read uh, the Archie comics, for example. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. And, and, and I yeah. did want you to give a sense to our listeners about what they could expect by talking a little bit, not, not you know too long, but at least for a few minutes, about some of the roots that you discovered in rock and roll as you were putting together this this archaeology of rock and roll it didn't it didn't didn't drop out of the sky in the 1960s you actually trace the 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 roots and and we've heard it before about you know gospel music you know having a role but you go back all the way to the 1600s and talk about ring dances and talk about various things. And I just wanted you to hit a few highlights 
about, you know, the the role of music originating, rock and roll music originating in Africa and coming here, uh, you know, 300, almost 400 years later. If you would just give everybody like the Cliff's Notes version of that. Sure. Um, well, I, I do want to, one of the one of the aims of the book was to give people a sense of this as an art form, and like all art forms, it does have roots in things that came before it, and it draws on things from from the past. It draws on movements and inspirations and works of art um, from the past. Now, specifically in the case of gospel music, which is one of the the key sources of what's going on in 1960s music. Gospel music is important and was a huge influence on this music because it um, it expressed uh, a spirituality in the music. Gospel music is sacred music, and it's music that is designed and intended to evoke ecstasy in the listeners, in the audience. Um, an ecstatic state, uh, maybe you might say a visionary state or a kind of trance state, um, and this is part of the, this is part of the African roots of gospel music, um, because the religions of the tribes of Western Africa, who um, the ones who were mostly uh, who suffered mostly from the slave trade. Um, were focused on the induction of ecstasy in the participants and the listeners, and you were supposed to dance yourself into this sort of mystical state. Um, so this music, gospel music, became a huge influence on popular music in the 1960s, and a lot of gospel artists uh, who start, started singing gospel music uh, ended up singing popular, very popular music. Um, there's not, um, there's barely a major black artist of the 1960s, a, a major soul singer, who did not go through training in a gospel church, in, in a gospel choir. Now, I think what happened with rock and roll is that the 60s come along, a few years pass by, and you get this music coming from England, of all places. You know, we tend to think of the British invasion as something sort of natural, and uh, we're used to the idea of it. What, what was unusual is that this music should be reflected back to us from this country across the ocean, but they were picking up on the ecstatic nature of the black American music that they were listening to. And they were not, they, they didn't necessarily share a faith background with the original singers and performers of gospel music in the United States. But they did, they were very keyed into the idea that the music would create an ecstatic state that would have a transformative effect on people, and they were, and they had that goal, and that's one of the things that makes '60s music so 
your life, changing your consciousness. And um, they, um, and that was something that there would not have been there had it not been for the influence of gospel music. You know, Christopher, I felt that in my own childhood with rock and roll music, my father was the dance instructor for a period of years before he started having a family and children and then became an insurance agent. And he taught my sister and I all of the uh, ballroom dances. We learned how to uh-huh. foxtrot. We learned how to you know, do the various, the waltz and the, uh, the box step and all the things. Yeah. And there was a lot of dancing in our household. Uh, a lot of musicals and dancing and and things having to do with those two things. Well, when I was a youngster and the the Beatles came on the scene and I was listening to music in the 1960s, no longer was I doing the waltz or the foxtrot. As Mm -hmm. As a young person, I was myself dancing ecstatically to the beat, the driving beat of this new music. And and I could say today, I do remember that. I do remember just being, you know, kind of wild and crazy and letting the music take over m- me in that state of, of music and dancing. So it, it, I feel like I'm an example of it of getting into that ecstatic, mystical state of being one with that music, with that sound. Did you have that, a similar experience? Oh, yeah. There's, there's, uh, there was always an invitation in the music to sort of surrender yourself to it. Um, and, this, and that's a, uh, an inheritance from the gospel tradition. Um, when the Beatles started out, they, um, as a as opposed to the Rolling Stones, who were very much into the blues, the Beatles were not so much into the blues as they were into other forms of black pop music from America that had its roots in the church. Um, They liked, for instance, the Beatles really liked the girl groups, you know, the Ronettes and the Shirelles and uh, the Shangri-Las and people like that. And that music, uh, that music had its roots in, in church performances, in performers who had been trained in the church. So the Beatles music had this sort of joyous uplift to it that people sensed even long before the Beatles supposedly got, you know, more serious and more into their art and more philosophical towards the end of the decade. They were still, the message was there from the very beginning that they were, they were bringing you a new way to live. And that implicit offer of a new way to live was something that I think the people, people in your situation, people in my situation could sense coming from them. We maybe couldn't put it into words, but we could sense that there was something being offered to us here. It was a little bit bigger than just your typical pop song. I think that all of that is true. And at the same time, I tell you, Chris, as many people as I've talked to about that, that whole scene, and it's plenty, 
they asked, well, what what was the people who weren't alive when the Beatles were making their music, when they were together? And they'll say, well, really, what was the big deal about them? You know, I like some of their songs, but why, what was this Beatlemania and all that? And I, I'm always flummoxed by that question. If you weren't around for it, I don't know how to tell you. You know, a book like yours is wonderful in its exposition of the subterranean currents that came to the surface. It's beautiful to read your writing in this regard. I try to explain in everyday conversation. I, go, I don't know. Uh, what I can tell <laughs> you is uh, that I lived in a society where I actually, in my young lifetime, I was not yet 10 years old, in uh, on November 22, 1963, and four days later, we buried a murdered president. And the entire nation and much of the Western world was plunged into grief and shock and confusion. Then, less than 100 days later, February 9, 1964, the Beatles come to America, and they presented something to America, the, the uh, brass ring of pop culture throughout the world. They presented themselves and their music, their style, their presence on the Ed Sullivan stage, and the youth of our culture went nuts, me along with them. And to this day, Chris, I still can't explain exactly why, but the feeling, it's still in my DNA, it's in my bones, and I'll never forget it. It's just difficult to explain if you weren't there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a kind of an X factor in Beatlemania that, um, that was a challenge to me in trying to pull, it, pull that thread out and try to clarify it and explain exactly what was going on there, um, that that sense of excitement was more, there was something implicit in that excitement that said, not only is, is the sound of the records that you're hearing on the radio going to change, but a whole lot of things are going to change, too. And People latched onto that. People could sense that. The Beatles, the early Beatles fans, the people who crowded their shows, could sense that something big was going on here. And I think that, um, you know, you mentioned the assassination of John Kennedy. I think there was, I think there was a little bit of historical synchronicity going on there. That um, the Beatles came at a moment when the promise of J.F of um, a more exciting kind of America, more new exciting challenges in life, was people were afraid that that was being lost. And in their own strange way, as a pop music group, the Beatles brought back some of that promise with them. Um, part of it, well, I, can, I could uh, digress uh, uh, a, a long distance into into the significance of uh, the Beatles being English, and I you think know, that they're. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, you know, I was going to say you're going exactly where I'd like you to go because in your book you say that the British grasped this rock and roll thing before the United States did, and you you had a particular reason for that. Is that where you were going with that? Yeah, I think that um, now Britain, when when the Beatles were growing up and all those 
first that first wave of English bands were growing up was kind of um was kind of a depressing place. Um it was post war, you know, the economy wasn't good. Um they were still rationing food. Um the the housing was kind of dismal. Um you look at pictures from that time and you know, you can still see the, the bombed out uh uh site in London from from the Blitz. Um and I think what these what these young Britons began to hear in this American music that was being brought over there, that was little by little making its way across the Atlantic Ocean to them, was the sound of hope for a new a new kind of energy that was not in their society at that time. And I think they sensed that it was a, a tool they could use to create sort of a new wave of energy in a society that was feeling pretty tired at that point. And so they did, they may not have adopted, you know, as, as white European young men, they may not have adopted culturally the entire cultural significance of the music that they were listening to, but they did take that one strain out of it, that strain of hope and energy, and uh, and they and they brought it back. They they amplified it up and they returned it to the United States with sort of electrifying effect. Yes, they did. Hold that thought, Christopher Hill, because we need to take our one break of the hour. And when we come back after a couple of minutes, we're going to dive even deeper into a wonderful book titled Into the Mystic, The Visionary and Ecstatic Roots of 1960s Rock and Roll. If you weren't there, listen up. We're trying to give you some sense, some flavor of what it was all about. Christopher Hill is our honored guest of the hour. After a couple of minutes, we'll talk some more. We're Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick and proud aunt. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. One in six. That little girl sitting alone at the playground, she can't play like the other kids. She doesn't have the energy because she's hungry. School lunch will be her only meal today. It breaks my heart that this is the reality in our country, but it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. 
This food is then provided to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about using your imagination, learning, and having fun. These children shouldn't have to miss out on simply being a kid because they're hungry. To find out how you can help end childhood hunger in your community, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Shepard Siegel, author of Disruptive Play on how the trickster works in politics and culture. On Saturday, Susan Messina returns with insights into the secrets of the universe, universal laws, energies, frequencies, and vibrations. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp? That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Van Morrison. All right, Morrison. Van, you can get off stage now. All right, and that was Van Morrison's Into the Mystic. Right on point here, the book that Gary and I are reading is Into the Mystic, The Visionary and Ecstatic Roots of 1960s Rock and Roll. The author with us this hour is Christopher Hill. Christopher, if people want to connect with you, uh, where do they get the book? Do you have a website, social media, any way that our people can find out more about you? Well, the uh, the book is available on Amazon and uh, also available directly from the publisher. Um, you, can, you can contact them, but the easiest way is probably to go through Amazon. Publisher is Inner Traditions Books. Um, I have a, uh, a website which I which I encourage you all to visit. Um, I made it myself. I'm very proud of it. Um, the uh, the address is Christopher Hill Books, all one word, no spaces. Dot dot com. W e e b l y dot com. So that's Christopher Hill Books at ChristopherHillBooks.Weebly.com. Okay. And uh, you can find out a lot of information about the book. You can find out about other stuff I've written. And um, and uh, I just put, when I find something interesting that seems relevant to the, uh, to the story I'm telling in the book, I put it up on the website. So if you're interested, it would be a good uh, source for you, I think. Good. Well, thank you very much. Before we went to the break, you said something that really caught my ear from reading your book, and that was that while the music was more or less originating in the United States, that it went to Britain where they really picked up on it, and you said they amplified it and sent it back. So they took the our gospel roots rolling into rock and roll, the British took it and, and just exploded it. And in your book, you talk about why it was so easily and well-received by the teenagers of our time. And so I wanted you to complete your thought about that. Well, I, I think one of the points I make in the book, especially in the, in the chapter about the Beatles, is that there was uh, an ex factor in how American young people reacted and experienced this music. And I think that X factor was the fact 
education that these kids, these young people, had already been through in their lives for this music. And that is the, uh, the tradition and the, the legacy of British children's literature. Um, a lot of a lot of the books that became standards and classics that American children were read were read as little as little kids were read to sleep by. Um, you know, books like Alice in Wonderland and uh, Winnie the Pooh and Peter Pan, uh, so many other things, Mary Poppins, um, and I think they had uh, my my theory is that uh, American children had a sort of imaginary Britain in their mind. Um, and when the Beatles came, a lot of these kids who, who became Beatles fans were not that much beyond the age of being read to sleep. You know, they were, they were in early adolescence, and I think that, they, that an idea had been given them of Britain as a special place where extraordinary things might happen, where there's a little bit of magic in the air, where people were spoke and dressed and acted in interesting ways. And I think that um, the American kids felt that behind somewhere behind the Beatles was this culture, was a way of life. That was that I think added added to the appeal that the Beatles had that the that all the English music had of offering this sort of more interesting, more colorful world to um, to the kids in America who had grown up with listening to these stories. Well said, Christopher. Thank you very much. I kind of want to move on from from that into something a little bit different. It was a conversation that was sparked between Gary and me after reading your chapter on California. And I said to Gary, um, I can't believe that I've thought of this for the very first time. When I lived in Chicago in the Midwest, I looked at California and thought about, you know, the fact that people talked about, you know, how it was going to break off and fall into the sea and all this crazy <laughs> stuff. Yeah. It's on a uh-huh. fault line. They have earthquakes. Gary lived there. That's where he grew up after being uh, born in Baltimore. His family moved to Southern California. And I said, I never realized what that difference would be between you and me in that every single day you lived with the knowledge that there were earthquakes and you were on that fault line, how where you live makes a very big difference in your DNA. And, and I, I understood that for the first time in reading your book, how significant all of the West was and its relationship to what was happening with rock and roll. Yeah, this uh, this idea of um, a culture and a life that was going on at the extreme western fringe of the United States, which I try to say in the book was sort of the extreme western edge of the whole world. You know, Western civ, Western civilization had been expanding westward 
for thousands of years. And they hit the coast, and all of a sudden, there was no place further to physically expand. And so I think that what happened is that in, in terms of consciousness and spirituality, people began to explore inner directions. Um, and that very much affected the culture of California. California became a kind of place that was, um, well, our, you know, the, the idea that it's prone to earthquakes and liable to fall into the sea is sort of a metaphor for just how kind of unsettled and, uh, and full of interesting vibrations the, um, the place was. And I think that when a youth culture began to take shape in California and you began to hear it in music by bands like the Beach Boys and things like that, and then later on when the later 60s rock and roll came from Los Angeles and San Francisco, I think that young people in the rest of the nation heard this call of a new kind of culture being shaped in California it was like there were two great influences, two great locales that were kind of beaming messages to kids in the center of America. One was the U.K. and one was California. And they were getting the idea from both of them, I would maintain, that there were different kinds of lives to live and different kinds of consciousness to experience. And I think that um, a lot of American kids picked up and headed off to California, or else they wished they could, or else, you know, if, if nothing else, they could run out and buy the newest record by, you know, bands from California, be it the Beach Boys or the Jefferson Airplane. But I think that, uh, I think that, that that sense of California being culturally a different place goes back a long way. I think it goes back to the first the first Western settling of California. That is so well said, Christopher Hill. And having grown up seven miles from Disneyland, so I was definitely submerged in popular culture with all of those influences that sometimes yes. blended and sometimes clashed. I can think of no more emblematic song, and here I must worship the dead. They're the song Estimated Prophet. That mm -hmm. is a call to California, the salvation of one's soul through popular culture and the company of one's eager peers going out to California if you're not there already. And as the chorus in that song launches into California and the lead singer sings knocking on the golden door, the whole idea... <laughs> yeah. The, the call to and the call of the lure of California wasn't only prophetic for millions of young people, it was rather messianic. And interestingly enough, Gary, what was your major in college? Religious studies. So there you were in the inner life expanding that and looking in your inner life as to spiritually what what was leading you where? What a perfect place to have that happen in California. And it was a dark night of the soul, which a lot of times happens in midlife, but to youngsters as well there, because not to belabor the point, but I went to college thinking I had all the answers. Is that a familiar trope? <laughs> and found out that I yes. didn't know squat. 
And so I found out uh, really in a, a tortuous way, not to say torturous, it was that sometimes too, that if you question the certainties of your forebears and of your parents, if you question all of that, you're going to become untethered to the very systems, the value, the, the, the shared values that raised you. And you find yourself in a very scary place because suddenly in terms of your philosophy of life, your understanding of reality, hey, man, you're on your own. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the dead were certainly um, missionaries for the California life. Yes. Um, they um, they strongly, especially in their in their earlier days, believed that things were happening in California that the rest of the world needed to know about, uh, especially the young people who could come out there. Um, there's a song on their very first album, The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion, um, which is just a, a joyful invitation to come on out and join the dance that's going on out there. Everybody's dancing in a circle around the sun. They say, nobody's finished, we ain't even begun. Um, and they, you know, you have to... You have to um, you have to talk about the influence of psychedelics when you talk about the dead. And at that point, the dead believed they were, they were proselytizers for psychedelics. There's no two ways about it. But they believed, as did other people at the time, and especially a lot of people in California, that there was, that psychedelics were a way into this new kind of consciousness that we've made a couple references to so far, and that it was a way into a deeper experience of life. Now, I'm sure that the dead and their, and their, um, in their cohort would have said, sure, there's other ways that you can experience this and get into it. But in those early days, they thought they had sort of found the Philosopher's Stone. They thought in psychedelics that they had found the key to this new kind of life, and I think um, today, with you know, we probably have all read little articles about the the new research that's being done into the therapeutic uses of psychedelics. Um, yes, for psilocybin, things like depression and end of life issues and alcoholism. Um, research on prison recidivism with mm -hmm. people who have been in, in programs using psychedelics judiciously. Um, I think you have to say that it was, it got out of hand. It may have been abused and a lot of people probably took it in circumstances that were not ideal. But I think we can still see that at the core, the, the question of, you know, are there different kinds of consciousness and are they valid and are they potentially useful and good for people to experience? I, I think that uh, I think that, that promise is still there. I think that it is, too. And isn't it interesting, Chris, that as we talk about that psilocybin in many doses, for example, it seems to have 
some profound therapeutic value when the administration of the drug is done according to strict protocols and is well managed by people who have been given permission by the man, by the system, to experiment with this. It all seems intelligent now, whereas it was radical and chaotic back in the day. Yes, extremely chaotic. Um, but, the, but the dead were, I, there's something about the dead's music, and especially back when they were uh, establishing their reputation as sort of the preeminent psychedelic band. When you listen to some of that early music, it really is otherworldly. I uh, I talk about their their third studio album, Axomaxoa, which was that was actually sort of the last really psychedelic album that the Dead did. You know, after that they turned to a kind of Americana kind of music. But on uh, on Axomaxoa, you really do get the sense that. Uh, it's coming from a place that is different from your ordinary consciousness. It's coming from a different sort of world, um, almost um, almost a fairy tale or a mythical kind of world. But that presence is very real. You can really it really communicates itself through the music, which I think is what a lot of this music did at its best. And that's why people would follow them around in their VW buses, because they would show <laughs> yeah, up. And, and wherever the dead were, we were there, which I didn't do myself, to my everlasting regret. But people who did show up, they formed these encampments. And whatever it was that was going on, they're on the cutting edge of consciousness, of the ability of pop culture to deliver us into a new experience was happening right there and right then. Yes, obviously there was there was something in the dead's appeal that really spoke to people in a very powerful way. And I think that until the very end of their existence as a band, um, as much as the music may, may have changed from the 60s, from their early records, um, I think that people felt, still felt that and felt that there was, there was the promise of some sort of new and different sort of lifestyle in their music that, um, that, that retained its power over the, uh, over the decades that the dead were around. Let me just go into a little byway with you, Chris, because we're lucky enough to have you on the air with us. What is your appreciate? Say what you will. What is your appreciation of the riveting personality and the magic in the voice of a chanteuse like Grace Slick? She was remarkable. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. Um, I, you know, I am a, I am a great big uh, Jefferson Airplane fan, and. And I, I didn't have, I ended up not having a lot of room for them in the book, which I, which I uh, regretted. But I think that the airplane, the airplane were also, in a way similar to the dead, they were evoking a new kind of life that could be led uh, on the West Coast. 
and especially focused around the city of San Francisco, which is which is always, you know, even before the sixties been sort of um sort of had the held out the promise of being open to different kinds of experiences and different kind kinds of life lifestyles and uh and social experiments. And I think that the airplanes did a very good job of catching that moment when the the, the seeds of the hippie movement were being planted in California, and the early days, the sort of dawn of that era, you can kind of feel, um, you can kind of feel a feeling of something fresh and new in that music that really piqued your curiosity when you heard it. You know, you wanted to know where that music was coming from because it had such such a feel to it of kind of mystery and lives that could be led that were maybe a little bit more in tune with whatever that mysterious thing was. Um, and uh, and Gracie Slick, of course, was you know right at the center of that, and she was a, a remarkable vocalist. And she and the way that she and Marty Ballon would sing together was uh, was very different and very striking. Um, and uh, and you had a, you you also had a powerful singer in Marty Ballon too. So the combination of both of them gave the bed a sound that was it was very unique and very striking and couldn't help but suggest new possibilities to people who heard it. Yes, that is absolutely true. Just to name one anthem of the 60s, White Rabbit. When I listen to it today, first of all, I'm wondering what it's doing <laughs> What it's doing on a commercial for some cruise line. What the hell? Me too. I wonder about that too. Hmm. But when I listen to White Rabbit, I learn something that I never knew as a kid when I heard it on the radio. If you were going to accept the terms of the new life that was promised by getting into psychedelia, by experimenting with drugs, you needed to know there's almost a, there's a sense of forewarning there that it isn't only thrilling this new life also has the capacity to be harrowing. And there were people, I was certain, I was a parochial school kid, so none of that for me, and my parents saw to it that I wasn't exposed to that sort of stuff. I heard it on the radio. But uh -huh. when I listened to the song, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I can understand why parents would say, this witch on the stage with, with the way she's singing and what she sings could tempt my kid into a world of drug experimentation. It uh, it could be pretty alarming, <clears throat> pretty alarming if you were a parent back then, um, and you watch old clips of the airplane uh, on stage or making an appearance on a television show, and they looked pretty strange. You know, they were they were definitely emissaries from someplace else, and um, you know, I I just want to say I, I I know we don't have that much time left. But I do want to make a point that um, these possibilities, the, the rock and roll music of the 1960s is, I think, deserves to be thought of 
um, in a class with any other kind of art form, any other kind of artistic movement. Um, we still go to see paintings uh, in art museums that were done hundreds of years ago, and we expect to be moved and maybe even transformed by that experience. We still listen to music that was composed hundreds of years ago. You know, we still believe there's a life in it, uh, and there's a power in it still. And so I think I would urge people to return to that music and return to the initial promise that it had and look to it as a source of inspiration for things that might become of your life right now. Um, and to not simply accept the fact that this is a relic of some kind of past era that has no relevance to us anymore. One of the things you said in the book, Christopher, was that the the music is like in us for all this time, you know, 50 years or more, and uh, that it is is part of who we are. And I and I said to Gary, there are songs that go back to the 60s that completely grab me, and I have to just stop and listen to those songs because they are so much a part of me. And so I, I I think for as long as we are alive, that that's always going to be the case. And Christopher, here's mm. a hint. Uh, around Suzanne Mitchell, all you need to do is name the group Strawberry Alarm Clock. That gets her going. <laughs> Christopher, what a great conversation. And I would love to have another one with you about more that's in the book since oh, yeah. we only just kind of touched the beginning. Please tell us that you will come back and we will have part two of this conversation. Oh, I would be happy to. This has been fun. Great. Fantastic. And that book once again. Into the Mystic, the visionary and ecstatic roots of 1960s rock and roll, the author Christopher Hill. Thank you so much, Christopher. What a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, too. All right. Coming so, up next. Coming up next, Jupiter Rising. That's going to be a good time. You know that. And we just want to say, stay safe, stay healthy, get into a lot of self-care if you're not already. Thanks so much, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. Have yourselves a great weekend. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.